Welcome to Rex Factor! This time, the Battle of the Raucous Royals, live! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where, as I've said every time, hilariously, we're not in Oxford. Oh, oh well, oh, Oxford. But anyone... when were we live in Oxford, Ali? November-ish. November 2018 on our first live tour, the third uh, of six live Tours? shows. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, shame. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, so we're halfway through at this point. We're halfway through, we've got a day off. Uh, the mm. next night. Well, actually, I suppose we're halfway through at the end of this. Yes, that's true. Mm. Yes. Um, and when we were in Oxford, we did the Battle of the... Raucous Royals. Very well remembered. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. So this was Charles II against George the Fourth. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, for some reason, the sound cut out during uh, the... Bad subjectivity for George the Fourth. Oh right. Section, so we don't have the whole of the live episode, unfortunately. Right. Uh, which is a bit of a shame. We don't know why that happened, it, but it just did. So mm. for anyone who asked a question in the Q and A, I'm afraid uh, that won't be included. Mm. But uh, what we're going to do is play you the episode uh, up to the point at which it cuts out, and then Ali and I will fill you in at the end as to what. Happened. Oh. Oh, hang on, I'm out of depth. <laughs> I don't know. I will fill you in as to what happened. Okay, afterwards. good. Good, good, good. But for now, here is the Battle of the Raucous Royals, Charles II against George IV. Shh! You're in the library, Oxford. The time is 7pm. Give or take a number of minutes. You just checked that, didn't you? It's Rex Factor, live, with your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello, hello, and uh, thank you for coming. And uh, we should say that that introduction, we have been getting increasingly worse at getting a dramatic entrance. So uh, when we were at London for our first night, we had to go out the side door, hide outside for a few minutes, wait for everybody else to come in before then we came back in. Great success, though. There was, uh, you know, we actually came onto a stage, which was great. It worked really well. Last night uh, in Bristol, we uh, the sound guy was taking so long that we haven't had a chance to go and get any food or go to the toilet. So our attempts at a sudden, unexpected entrance from a little cubbyhole was foiled by the fact that Ali had to come back in with his uh, bag of burgers, and I had to actually queue to get back in after <laughs> the toilet. <laughs> So today we haven't even actually managed to leave the stage. We just sat here. So apologies if it's been a bit weird, us just sitting here <laughs> looking at you. <laughs> but I, li- I like the idea that that's what they think that we do all the time, just wait to podcast until we do another <laughs> one. Hello, Graham. Yeah. Suddenly switch on. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you very much, everybody, for coming. This is the third 
uh, of the Rex Factor live tour of this year. And Ali, what are we going to be doing tonight? It is the, I don't know if you get the wording right, the Battle of the Raucous Royals. So that is, not, I'm not saying no. Uh, yeah, so we've got Charles II, obviously, and George IV. Mm. And you do want to do, want to do it in your podcast voice. Oh, I see. That, so that we right, can do yeah, it later. Okay. okay. Uh, this time, the Battle of the Raucous Royals. I, I always have to say this every night, but I always do the hands. I don't know why. I can't do it without doing the hands. It's re- it must annoy you so much to see. It annoys me. So every night we're doing a battle between uh, two of the monarchs that we've reviewed from previous series. So tonight's one, we are doing two of the more partying, scandalous monarchs, Charles II and George IV, which was a suggestion by somebody in the audience, I believe, on Twitter. We thought it was such a good one. Oh, oh no. she was like, Ah, oh. and it was bad. It was bad luck because then uh, tickets became available, so we tweeted her. But then she'd made other arrangements, so she missed out twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, in her honour, we're going to be doing Charles II and George the Fourth. I've and got this ready. Yeah, that think, yeah that may break. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so your key question today, I think, is going to be whose party would you rather attend, Charles's? Oh, good. Or George's? Good, good, good. I mean, this is genuinely all brand new to me, and we've never scripted anything. I mean, Graham has some bullet points that he tries to hit, but other than that, I mean, when we say brand new, you mean other than the two podcast yeah, well, episodes yeah, yeah. that you have doesn't count already for anything, forgotten. Graham. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> So a quick overview of the two monarchs before we go into their lives and reigns. Charles II, first of all, mm-hmm. born in 1630 and became king in 1660. So he was 30 years old when he came mm-hmm. to the throne. Uh, he was about six foot two, very tall. That's our third in a row, in fact, that was six foot two. Because we, we did had Edward and Edward first and Henry VIII oh, yeah. last night. Uh, quite a dark complexion, Charles II. Black hair, dark brown eyes. Bit of a spaniel look to him. Straight away. <laughs> Where's that come from? Just the hair over his ears. Oh, was it a wig in those days? Or was it pre-wig? He did have a wig. I'm not sure if it was pre-wig and then he needed a wig to maintain it or if it was uh, just a wig okay. post-wig. Right. Um, Samuel Tyke in 1660 described him. He said, his face is rather grave, but softened whensoever he speaks. His complexion is somewhat dark, but his eyes are quick and sparkling. His hair, which he hath in great plenty, is of a shining black, not frizzled, but so naturally curling into great rings that it is a very comely ornament. Oh, nice. Not an ornament? Mm. Sounds like Bess of Hardwick with all of her gear <laughs> up in her hair. Georgina. Oh. <laughs> We'd normally cut these things. <laughs> Although some of those equally, I would definitely leave it. <laughs> yeah, I've got no say over that. It's annoying. Um, and in terms of his personality, he is, of course, remembered as the Merry Monarch. Affable, free from graces, witty sense of humour, a bawdy court, but also a little bit of a cynical and shrewd politician behind the smiles. Yeah, my favourite. John Evelyn said he was a prince of many virtues and many great imperfections, debonair, easy of access, not bloody or cruel. Right. Easy of access. What, what, what do we mean there? Uh, well, let's leave that open to okay. interpretation. <laughs> uh, George IV was born in 1762, and he doesn't become king until 1820 when he was 57 years old. Not good for his overall rec factor. Not good for longevity. Uh, Georgina, the Duchess of Devonshire, described him as a young man, uh, saying that the prince is rather tall and has a figure which, though striking, is not perfect. He is inclined to be too fat and looks too much like a woman in men's clothes. (laughs) But his face is very handsome, and he is fond of dress even to a tawdry degree, 
which, young as he is, will soon wear off. Oh. An incorrect uh, prediction at the end there from <laughs> George Hayne. Yeah, yeah. He, um, so, what did you say about looking like a woman? Too much like a woman. In men's clothes. So, she's implying that it's like a sweet spot. Where you can <laughs> look just enough like a woman. Okay. Hmm. Uh, in terms of his personality, he is, of course, notorious as the Prince Regent. He wore excessively yeah. gaudy clothes, grew rather large with uh, continual feasting. Uh, but he was actually quite kind-natured, wore his emotions on his sleeve, and he was quite able, but he struggled to find a role whilst his father was king. Uh, but it, So how constitutional is he at this point? Like, is there, How much power did he have? Um, he does technically, he does theoretically have some power, but it's significantly less than when Charles was king. It was really right. after 1688 and William III that the power of the monarchy starts to decline. So he's just got time to eat. He's got plenty yeah. of time to okay. eat. So let's look at their lives and reigns. Ali, do you remember what you're going to say next? Battleiness. No. What? Biography. I've been practicing that. I've done it wrong every single night because you normally do we we haven't done biography. Like we don't before. usually have that in the podcast. Oh. We've done it every night though. But because people laugh at that, but I did that ten years ago nearly. Now <laughs> I've never done it since. Now all of a sudden I can't remember them. So Charles II. Um, a bit of backgroundy stuff for Charles II. His father Charles I clashed with Parliament over. Um, he believed in the di- divine rights of monarchy, whereas Parliament believed in you know Parliament. Mm. Uh, and this ultimately leads to the civil war, culminating in Charles I being executed and Oliver Cromwell setting up a republic. The monarchy is no more. Mm. How long was that for? Well, we'll find out. Oh, right. okay. Good. Um, Cromwell is uh, introduces a puritanical regime, so we see theatres and Christmas banned, uh, but he struggles to really make it work as a long-lasting replacement for the system of monarchy. Not surprised. Sounds dull. It does sound yeah. dull, doesn't it? Well, thankfully, we've got Charles II yeah, going. Brilliant. Uh, Charles was actually crowned King of Scots in 1651, but he was defeated uh, in the Battle of Worcester by uh, Cromwell and spent six weeks as a fugitive before escaping to France, where he spent the next nine years in exile. He was King of Scots? He was crowned King of Scots, and then was going to try and come into England and re-establish himself, but he failed. Ah, because, yeah, it's post-James VI and everything. So uh, he was still King of Scotland, even when he was trying to be... Well, he was, after Charles was executed, um, Charles, Charles I was executed, Charles II was crowned King of Scots. Right. As a you know, as a form of resistance to Cromwell. Oh, okay, but no, no power because Cromwell was still kicking around. Yes, and indeed he kicked Charles. Oh, no power at all. <laughs> indeed. So he goes off to France for nine years. But when Cromwell died in 1658, and his son Richard was quite ineffective, mm-hmm. there's a fear that there's going to be civil war again. It's going to break out. They don't really have a clear way to fill that power vacuum. So negotiations take place, and they think the best thing to do is to invite Charles II back, and we have the restoration of the monarchy. Hey! So in 1660, Charles II becomes king. He lifts all of these puritanical bans, promotes religious toleration despite the rather Anglican parliament, marries Catherine of Braganza, mm-hmm. which got off to a bit of a bad start. She wore her hair in ringlets, so he looked at her and exclaimed, they bought me a bat. <laughs> I forgot that. I, I, yeah, this is all coming back. Brilliant. But he does come to care for her quite deeply. Despite... Mind you, he looked like a spaniel. Well, he's like, yeah. So, well, I mean, it's not an ideal match. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, it can't mate. Well, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> you are starting to remember this. Yeah. Aren't you? <laughs> oh, ah, I see where you're going with that. No, I wasn't. 
London has uh, London has some difficult times in the 1660s. There's a great plague in 1665, which is the last wave of the Black Death. Something like a hundred thousand people die Ugh. as a result of this. And then the next year, 1666, we have the Great Fire of London. Mm. Charles and his brother James are on hand to try and put it out, but a lot of the medieval city is destroyed. Uh, in terms of his foreign policy, in 1661 we have Louis the Fourteenth uh, reaching his majority in France, and he is very much the big power in Europe. Charles becomes something of a vassal to Louis. He's got Catholic sympathies, having been in France for many years. And he actually gained a pension from Louis with a secret treaty pledging to restore England to Catholicism. Oh, that's bad news for England, isn't it? That's why they kicked out James. Because he was a Catholic, yeah. yeah. He launches unpopular and unsuccessful wars against William of Orange, the future William III. Huh. And as you said, the big problem is that Catholicism, his mm. wife is a Catholic and proved unable to have children. Because ah. of the whole bat spaniel yeah, thing yeah. that we've described earlier. And uh, his brother James is openly Catholic and uh, Parliament fears that they are going to see despotic Catholic rule mm. if he becomes James II. Yeah. So we actually have various bills put before Parliament calling for James to be um, excluded from the throne. Mm. And this really comes to a point of hysteria when a chap called Titus Oates made various bogus claims of a Catholic conspiracy. Who's he? What's, how, why were people listening to him? Um, well, he, it's just publicised, really, and he makes a big uh, song and dance about it, and everyone is whipped up into hysteria. We've got Parliament petitioning Charles to get his brother out of the former succession. Charles is now in fighting against Parliament. It's all starting to get mm, a little dear. bit too redolent of the 1640s. Mm. Thankfully, though, his enemies in Parliament overplay their hands somewhat. Uh, there's a discovery of a murder a murder plot in 1683 uh, for Charles and James to be killed, and this rather taints, by association, his opponents ah, good, in good. Parliament. Right, So, but presumably Charles, Charles didn't want them to get rid of his brother. He did not, he but, opposed it. But he similarly didn't want anyone who was massively religious one way or the other. Well, he just believed, you know, it's his brother, that's the next person in okay. line. Right. Mm-hmm. So he has succeeded in seeing them off, and after that, he doesn't actually need to call Parliament anymore because he's getting plenty of money from the French. So, <laughs> brilliant problem solved. But unfortunately, Charles doesn't have very long to enjoy it. In 1685, he suffered an unexpected stroke, mm. or perhaps convulsions due to a kidney disease, and he was no more. He apologised for being such an unconscionable time dying. Oh, that's brilliant! Apologising um, for dying. Sorry this is taking so long. We had an incident today. We were having some lunch and I was standing up really quickly. I did something similar where I got the procedure the wrong way around, apologised and then jumped up and knocked everything off the table. (laughs) And I felt it was, we nearly started talking about this. So save it. We've got a a gig tonight. Uh, He asked for his uh, curtains to be drawn one last time so that he could see dawn rise above the River Thames. And uh, he died at the age of 54 being received into the Catholic faith on his deathbed and bidding James to take care of his mistress. Uh, mm. (laughs) It was nearly so beautiful. And then he goes... (laughs) (laughs) So that was Charles II. What about George IV? Background stuff for him. His father, George III, is actually quite a successful and popular monarch for most of his reign. Um, Except in America. (laughs) (laughs) American fans in the front there. (laughs) Um, but for George the Fourth, it wasn't a very pleasant childhood because George the Third was obsessed with morality and this public image. So there's a very strict childhood regime for George, and as such, he becomes a bit of a rebellious young prince. 
He has numerous affairs with actresses. 1785, he was secretly and illegally married a Catholic woman, Maria Fitzherbert. Mm. And uh, he also befriends various radical politicians that his father hated, particularly Charles James Fox. Uh, just, just to annoy his dad? Just yes. to annoy his dad, really. But really? So was it like a power thing? Was he trying to... Because I know he formed that other little power section. But he was going to come to power eventually anyway. Why couldn't he just party? Well, I mean, his dad, well, he did party. That's what he did. He went to lots of parties, and that's what the radical politicians did as well. Oh, uh, okay. Well, Charles James Fox was the one that went to a party and won something like £10,000 by getting people to bet on whether or not he had uh, defecated in his own trousers. And he won the bet because although everybody thought he had because it smelt so bad, he'd actually paid a servant to do it for him so that it wasn't actually his own soiled sample. It was a servant's. That is worth 10 grand, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now that's worth 10 grand, let alone then. God. Any, any offers? <laughs> but his father is struck down by uh, mental health problems, probably, uh, possibly porphyria, still being uh, debated. So in 1788, we have a Regency crisis because everybody thinks that George is such a terrible rotter, you couldn't possibly have him actually in control. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a standoff with William Pitt and the radicals, but thankfully for them... George III at this point recovers and there is no regency. Okay. He must have been annoyed when he got better. George III or? George III. Well, actually, both of them. George III. Neither of them are in a good mood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so th he's now had a little taste of power, likes it. Well, he didn't get any power. He almost got a taste of power. Uh, they didn't actually let him be regent. Clever. Put it off long enough mm -hmm. that they didn't have to. And also, actually, George IV. Not that he's actually George IV yet, but he's massively in debt because of all his gambling and parties and actresses mm. and whatnot. So his father refuses to pay him unless he starts to reform his behaviour and actually marries. But he already has. Technically, he has already married, but his father doesn't know about this. Oh, God. So instead, George marries Caroline of Brunswick, his uh, first cousin. Oh, so he's married secretly and possibly illegally yes and then marries his first cousin yes so he's a bigamist and incest yes right <laughs> good it's powerful stuff already he's not king and uh, it's not a particularly good marriage they absolutely hate each other right from the off oh they Is do he... manage to produce a daughter but pretty much immediately separate after that ah uh, i mean it, this is pineapple head isn't it no that's his younger brother william the fourth <laughs> All right. Okay. Fine. Oh, because of yeah. Hugh Laurie and Blackadder. Yes. Got him. Got him. Right there. Yeah. yeah. Now, in 1810, George the uh, George III does fall permanently ill with uh, whatever his mental health issues were. So this time, George does become the Prince Regent. Right. He's got some real power, mm. and um, it's a renowned period for his patronage of the arts. We see the end to the Napoleonic Wars with uh, Waterloo, but also we've got poor harvest and socio-economic unrest. Um, so it's you know some positives and negatives as we see in subjectivity for this period. And he finally becomes king ten years later in 1820. Right. Okay. That's pretty good time for the British Empire and all the power and all this sort of stuff. End of the Napoleon War, as you say. Yeah. Napoleonic exactly. War. So, Caroline, having been separated from him, now comes back because she fancies being queen. Uh, yeah. George, of course, his main priority as king is to make sure he can divorce his wife. <laughs> well, there's a precedent for that now, isn't there, with, after Henry? Well, and he does rather better than Henry, to be fair. So, um, he, does have to, he has to urge Parliament to grant him this uh, divorce. And it is just passed very narrowly, though public opinion is actually against him. He has to ask Parliament. But he, isn't he in charge of the church? 
Oh, it doesn't quite work as easily as that now. Uh, There's got some laws and stuff in place yeah. that Henry Damn didn't have laws. to worry about. Yeah. We just killed him. Yeah. <laughs> so he becomes queen, a uh, king, rather. <laughs> he becomes king, divorces his wife. And uh, surprisingly, has quite a good start to his reign. He enjoys uh, some very successful tours of Ireland and Scotland, and also Hanover in, from 1820 to 21. Um, it doesn't really follow it up very much, but still, he had a good time. Good, good, good. So what, when you say tours, you mean... He went there. He just went there and carried on doing his partying there, but was yeah. present. And invited yeah. people. Oh, okay. So That's it all seemed nice. Yeah. And we also have Catholic emancipation, so that Catholics are allowed to actually hold public office and... All this sort of God, thing. It's been a few hundred years. Indeed. But unfortunately, all these years of partying have rather caught up with uh, Georgie Porcy. Uh, excessive eating and drinking took its toll on him. He suffered gout and rheumatism, went blind in one eye, severe breathlessness. He was ultimately too embarrassed to uh, be seen in public because of his appearance. Oh, or he'd really? wear sort of really massive dark clothes and be all swaddled up in his chariots. Um, apparently, 1829, he was seen by a dentist 27 times. Oh, gosh. And the dentist in uh, yeah, 1829 is oh, not to be visited gosh, once no. if you really have to. So in 1830, it all gets a bit too much for him. He woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, not feeling too well. He took some medicine and some tea and went to sleep. But then at 3 o'clock, a blood vessel burst in his stomach. So uh, he clutched his physician and cried, Good God, what is this? My boy. This is death. <laughs> and promptly died at the age of 67. Wow. Well, he, I mean, he, he had foresight, didn't he? He knew exactly what <laughs> he was coming. Did. They were definitely his final words. The physician yeah. recorded it. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. I like a punchy end like that. Like Charles had one, but then <laughs> ruined it a bit with his lettery. Let uh, not poor Nelly starve. Oh. Who was the fellow who said about take care of my mistress? Well, that's Charles. Nelly is the mistress. Ah. Yes, got you. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Good. Well, because when you said take care... Oh, I see. No, he didn't mean that. No. No, no. Well, oh. I mean, it's classic Charles. I bet he did mean that. And they, they just translated it back to, <laughs> to something a bit more ambiguous. So what do you think then? The two of them uh, together, those lives and reigns, any initial thoughts before we start to look at the factors? Oh, well, I, I was really worried about this one because they're two... Of, I always like kings that I think you just want to be their mates. They just seem like nice... Guys, they, it's beyond the time when they they really were killing everyone left, right, and centre, and they just sort of liked to have a nice time. So uh, and seemed fun. Hmm. Uh, so probably with that in mind, Charles. Well, you don't have to <laughs> decide yet. No, well, like each factor by factor, I think they're I'll... quite interested. Like they both have to play a waiting game, so they basically have sort of a good decade where they've sort of got power, but technically not so we've got charles when he was crowned king of scots after his father died but he doesn't actually get to be king mm. and we've got uh, george the fourth as a prince regent where he's not actually technically king i think it's um george's is easier though because though he's not technically king he's there in england knowing he will be king and partying whereas charles is out in the wilderness making sure he doesn't get his head cut off yeah by a lot more difficult i'm surprised he's so chipper after all that really. perhaps significantly for their personalities they also both po uh, follow periods of sort of puritanism and moralistic oh, yeah, people as well. And they are perhaps quite a strong reaction <laughs> against yeah. that previous parallels, culture. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Shall we look at it factor by factor, if you can yes, remember we, the order? I'll, I'll get it right this time. Battleiness! Hey. 
This is not perhaps the best category for either Charles II or George IV. Uh, for Charles, um, at the Battle of Edge Hill in the Civil War in 1642, he did brandish a pistol and <laughs> shout defiantly at the enemy. That is terrifying. So you've got a spaniel waving something in the air going... Grrr. 12 years old. Oh, sweetie. <laughs> Just trying to defend his dad. Yeah. Oh. It's not good, though. Sweet, but not good. And he showed some leadership and bravery at the Battle of Worcester. Which one was that? Uh, that was the one that he lost ah. and then had to flee the country. Not good. Not good. So perhaps not the best. And obviously when he becomes king, it's by invitation rather than conquest. <laughs> yeah. 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 Did he start any wars or? Well, again, we'll, we'll have a little look at that. Perhaps okay. not very successfully, but yes. All right. Good. His marriage to Catherine of Braganza brings uh, Tangiers and Bombay into English uh, oh. ownership. Oh, interesting. But in terms of actual world domination, Louis XIV, very much the uh, the power horse mm. at this stage. England is not a grand empire under mm. Charles. No. So you asked about, does he start any wars? Well, he does start wars with the Dutch. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't go well, does it? Well, 1665, the Battle of Lowestoft, an invading Dutch fleet was defeated in battle oh. by his brother James. Ah, yeah, right. Not good. Well, that's pretty good because it's under his reign. Yeah. Yeah, all right, fine. Less good was the raid on the Medway in 1667 when the Dutch invaded again. 13 British ships were lost and the flagship, the one that brought Charles back from exile, was captured. That's the one I was thinking of, yeah. Mm. yeah. What, when, what I can't understand is, is this all because he was in Louis' pockets? Yes, because technically, really, England is meant to be a Protestant country. Yeah, the Dutch are Protestants and yet we're making war with the Dutch. So did everyone know that, that the king was just... Uh, basically in, in the French king's pocket. They didn't know paid. that he'd signed the secret treaty. I suppose the word mm. secret there being the... Uh... <laughs> but everyone must have gone, there but must be a secret treaty going yeah. on. But well, it, weren't people annoyed? That well, he drew up a, a sort of found excuses to do yeah. it. But okay. yeah, it wasn't a popular war, yeah. particularly when they lost. Yeah, all right. So really, the main thing for Charles is actually that Battle of Worcester in 1651 where he was decisively defeated. So his most famous battle escapade is actually spending six weeks running away. Oh, and uh, yes, I love this. Are we going to do his... We are, because uh, yes. it is quite fun. Fantastic. There's a reward of £1,000 for his capture after he uh, flees from the battle. That's a tenth of a pair of trousers. <laughs> <laughs> he had to hide up a tree in uh, Boscobel. Yeah, Royal Oak. the Royal Oak, yeah, 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 yeah. Son of Royal Oak is still there today. There's a Royal Oak pub near me with a, with a tree and a picture of Charles's face in it, but it's near Malden. <laughs> It's nowhere near where uh, the Royal Oak was. So I guess this is just like the King's Head. Just I think like... many pub names are not necessarily... Uh... Oh, I thought it was unique to there. Oh, I thought... It's it was one of the most possible. popular pub names in the country, I believe. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, shut me up. No, no. <laughs> I've, I have been to pubs. This isn't my first time. Um, he wanted to go across into Wales initially, but he had to turn back to Stratford when he saw that the route was blocked and then Sirencester. He stopped at Stonehenge just to do a spot of sightseeing. <laughs> so good, yeah. Went Why back. not? He's in the area. Yeah. He might not ever come back. You'd regret it if you don't go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could touch them then as well. So. Well, he did. So he went around counting them because apparently it was impossible to count them twice and get to the same number. But that, he did. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Uh, he eventually made it to Brighton and then boarded a ship uh, to France at Shoreham. But he shows a lot of initiative. It's not perhaps battling initiative, but nevertheless, he gets himself out of a scrape. He really enjoyed dressing up and being in disguise. Oh, yes, he did. His face and hands were stained with walnut juice, and he liked to dress up as woodcutters and servants and <laughs> people like that, put on funny voices. 
loved playing characters. They really tested it as well. So there's one time he actually asked somebody what the king looked like mm. and was told he was a good three inches taller <laughs> than Charles himself. Um, but this means he's one of the only kings that actually really gets to experience life of his ordinary subjects because yeah. he did have to live in uh, cramped conditions, make his own way amongst the people. It, ju- it just strikes me as completely unaware of how serious the situation was. <laughs> he, he sort of thought, brilliant. Here's a chance I can play spy and go <laughs> off and, and dress up. Who shall I be today? I'm going to be a, a, a you know, I don't know, a stable boy and mm. and get play with his fancy dress box. Did he understand that he would get killed? <laughs> well, I guess we'll never know. Just uh, either that, or he's got a, an incredible bravery as well. So that's sort of fattiness. There we go. We're getting yeah. getting a little bit in there. Yeah. Let's see George the Fourth's efforts. Okay. In some ways, it's far, far better. We've got, uh, with apologies to uh, <laughs> no personal, the, the War of 1812. Oh, yes. Do, do we burn down the... Uh, well, well, let's see. The, uh, the British view of this is uh, not necessarily the same. It's maybe, let's call it a score draw. The, uh, America don't take Canada from the British, but equally the British aren't able to then push back in. But they do burn down the White House. And, Sorry. Uh, but in typical British fashion, they saw that dinner had been prepared, so the officers sat down, ate the dinner, and then burned down the White House. <laughs> Uh, apparently, there's a really terrible, well, a, a very fortuitous storm that actually prevented the entire building being completely destroyed. So that actually is why it was preserved. Yeah. Was it? Any, w- is any of the current White House that White House? Hmm. Is it None just at rebuilt? All. It's all destroyed. Oh. oh well, yeah, that'll that'll do it. <laughs> anyway, so that's a positive. <laughs> Bigger and I think more unequivocally, unequivocally successful are the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, Napoleon is defeated, and it's under the regency of George that we have the ultimate battle at Waterloo. Duke of Wellington leads Britain to victory, and Napoleon is stopped. That's huge, isn't it? That was the the war of the century. That one. Yeah. Like the, until the First World War, that was the one that people look back on, and it was under his his reign. Exactly. Pretty good, though. At this point in the series, were we judging kings on what happened during their reign, even if they weren't actually? We were involved? giving them credit for things that happened during their reign. But George was a firm supporter of Wellington, very committed to the cause. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't actually given any kind of role himself. He kind of wanted one, but his father thought it was too risky for the heir to be exposed to uh, you know military mm. things going on, uh, so refused all of his requests. But in 1811, when he was a regent, he made himself a field marshal and uh, to sign yeah. himself a special uniform which apparently weighed 200 pounds what was it a tank <laughs> <laughs> he also got a little bit delusional so he actually came to believe that he was the one that created the grand european alliance that defeated napoleon right. and he even came to believe and tell everybody that he led a victorious cavalry charge at waterloo so the duke of wellington when uh, george uh, told him this said uh, so you have told me, sir, but I did not witness this marvellous charge. He actually told Wellington. He told the Duke of Wellington that he had led the victorious charge at Waterloo. Was he mad? Quite possibly a little yeah. bit. Ooh, a dear. little bit off there. Certainly eccentric. So neither of them were perhaps personally yeah. very successful in battleliness. Mm. I suppose George does technically have... The Battle of Waterloo, and you know, if he did lead the victorious charge, that would be yeah, very that would be amazing. Yeah, or oh, tricky, isn't it? Because in Charles's time, he did have kings on the battlefield, mm. but there just wasn't the. He was twelve when he mm. waved his little pistol. Yeah. Mm. 
But they both have anecdotes, so Charles loved to tell everybody about his escape from uh, from Cromwell, and George liked to tell everybody that he won the Battle of Waterloo. So, <laughs> yeah, at least they both he, thought that they were very good yeah, at battliness. At least he did actually do escape, did do an escape, yeah. uh, which was sort of an adventure. But George had all this great stuff happening under him, but nothing to do with him. No. So again, a score draw maybe. Hmm. Ooh, scandal. <laughs> Well, I think this is what we've all come for tonight. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Charles II, first of all, his court is uh, renowned for its debauchery. Yeah. Late night partying, very little evidence of work going on. Uh, one of the chief men and one of his oldest friends, Duke of Buckingham, was very much at the lead of this sort of band of drinking, womanizing courtiers. Uh, he went into exile with Charles and, they, uh, Charles and they grew up together. And apparently uh, Duke of Buckingham masturbated in Thomas Hobbes' geometry lessons. <laughs> that is, why did he really like geometry? <laughs> just, who knows? Yeah, good. Oh, can't quite process that. And and we know this because Charles was just sort of recounting it as you. Oh, you never guess what old uh, <laughs> what's his name did. What Buckers was up to? <laughs> Buckers in geography, geography, geometry. Mm. When William III first visited England in 1670, he was absolutely appalled at the licentious court. He saw people relieving themselves just in the corner of the rooms. It's been the word of the um, of the evening, but why? Why didn't they just go to the loo? Well, I guess the corner of the room was closer. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. Yeah. He also a bit appalled that they let spaniels eat at the table. <laughs> was he talking about Charles? <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> Though apparently the Duke of Buckingham did manage to get William drunk on one of these nights, and he ended up um, wandering into the room of one of the ladies at court and causing a bit of a scene. Oh, I'd love the idea of William drunk, sort of just flapping into a room. <laughs> going, Excuse me. Oh, sweetie. The Earl of Rochester described uh, Charles II saying, Restless he rolls from whore to whore, a merry monarch, scandalous and poor. Ah, uh, he's even called, and poor? Mm. Poor as in he's poor behaviour or he had no money. Probably a lack of money, I think, rather. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, he's even called scandalous in his, in his yeah. day. That's yeah. pretty good. He had a great number of mistresses. Mm. Nobles, French Catholics, actresses. Um, he kind of treated his court as something of a harem. So he actually has them all living at court. Just, oh dear, like, like it just takes his pick each night. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Um, his wife wasn't too happy about this, particularly when his chief mistress, Barbara Villiers, was actually made Lady of the Bedchamber, which is a position relating to the Queen rather than... <laughs> <laughs> Why did he do that? That sounds just mean. Well, yeah, as I said, she wasn't very happy about it. I mean, yeah. again, he just thought logically, so, well, I mean, just you know, she's a, a prominent person at court because she's mm. my mistress. Um, this is a position that's vacant. It would solve, you know, many uh, problems. Yeah, right, okay. And that's... Uh... A position that she then had to give up when he moved on to the next person. Well, he doesn't have to give up, does he? He could just take on new people rather than uh, right. drop the old ones. Mm. Um, the other, perhaps the most famous one, is Nell Gwynn. Yes. Great Paul play. We saw, did we see that together? The one with... Um, uh, 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 oh, God. <laughs> we'll cut this again. We normally go through this. Uh, Bond girl. Uh, anyone seen that? Thank you. Gemma Arterton. Was it with you I saw that? No. Okay. <laughs> yes. It was a very good play. <laughs> uh, she was a poor London girl who sold oranges and became an actress. Yeah, that's her, Gemma Arterton. Very cheerful and uh, <laughs> very cheerful and saucy character. She called him Charles the Third because he was her third Charles. 
Oh, God. He was all right with that. Yeah. Oh. And there was one time when she was in her uh, carriage and a hostile crowd thought that she was a French Catholic um, mistress of Charles's. Yeah. And she popped her head out of the window and said, pray good people be silent. I am the Protestant whore. <laughs> it's a time of, of great uh, openness and <laughs> just very aware of who they are and where they stand in the situation. Well, as was Charles. Uh, one time he was hailed by somebody at court as the father of his people. And he then laughed and said that he certainly had fathered a great number of them. <laughs> <laughs> he was apparently nicknamed Old Rowley after one of his favourite stallions. Ah, right. He was literally a stud. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, again, the Earl of Rochester, Charles's scepter and his prick are of a length, but she who plays with one may sway the other. <laughs> I don't know where to start with that. If that's literally, that implies that <laughs> in the bedroom... This great scepter is being whirled around the room. And it... Oh, no, I don't want to think of the opposite. Carry on. Shall we move on to George IV? Yes, please. So, George, um, as you said, a bit of a rather uh, disastrous young man. Yeah. 1784, he got himself arrested. Could he get arrested? Well, yes, and he thought that this was a very good thing. He said, thank God the laws of this country are superior to rank. It should make an Englishman proud to see the Prince of Wales obliged to send for a tailor to bail him. Uh, he's got a point, though. That's great. In some ways, yes. In other ways, it's perhaps not the most laudable thing for the no. Prince of Wales to be doing. No, I mean, it's. I prefer to know that in theory that can happen than actually perhaps trying it out in practice. Yeah, if Prince Charles did that and said, you know, if you think about this, it's actually quite <laughs> a good... I would admire him, his, his balls, <laughs> to do that. That'd be fantastic. He ran up extensive debts, George IV. In 1795, he had debts of something like £730,000, which might be about £50 million pounds today. Uh, how, would, how, how do you spend that much money? Clothes, gambling, women, food. Well, well done him. That's impressive. <laughs> he was granted an extra 65000 and then another 60000 in 1803, but continued to spend extravagantly. And his treasurer apparently admitted that his debts were ultimately beyond all kind of calculation whatsoever. Wow. So it was the idea that this was okay because when he became king, the state would write them off? Or well, it's not really okay. Because no, no, no. But ultimately, it's the state's money. Yeah, but did he think that it would somehow be I all don't right? think he really understood the concept of budgeting. Okay, right. I Spending, he got down yeah. to a T, but yeah. budgeting... <laughs> Less so. Um, he was a bit of a Henry VIII chap, as you said, in terms of his, uh, his growth and his size. He has this great big corset um, built for himself. Gilray, a cartoonist, depicted him uh, as a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion, mm. where he's found slumped in his chair, his belly about to burst, surrounded by wines and bills that haven't been paid. So Sounds quite depressing. Well, he is mercilessly, uh, mercilessly attacked in the uh, in the cartoons of the time. He's unfortunate to be around at the time when the cartoonists really become a thing, satirical cartoonists. Mm. So he is considered scandalous at the time because people are just mocking him all the yeah. time. Yeah, poor bloke. Poor old George. But he does get himself into some bother. Early on, uh, it was a lady, May Mary Robinson, who was an actress, and uh, George wrote incriminating letters to her describing everything that's been going on, all of his feelings towards her. So obviously she is a bit smarter than him and so blackmails him. Oh. Because she's got all these letters oh. from the Prince Regent. But he, was there... Uh, yeah, was he'll, sign, he'll sign them and just talk about his love for her and all this sort of He's stuff. done up like a kipper. 
Well, he was exactly. The Prime Minister had to purchase the letters back to prevent a scandal. Mm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So if you're getting the Prime Minister involved. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good, is it? I can see why they didn't perhaps trust him to be king. And as you said, Maria Fitzherbert, he becomes infatuated with a twice-widowed Roman Catholic commoner. Mm. And uh, he first tried to get her to marry him in, uh, by lightly cutting himself and pretending that he was dying. He's completely deluded, isn't he? But they they do marry for real in oh. 1785, but um, he couldn't get a proper person to do it, so he has to get a priest from a debtor's prison <laughs> to marry them. Uh, and it is official, it is actually a marriage. Well, except it's totally illegal because they have to get permission from the king. Right. And she's a Catholic, so he should have been barred from the succession because of this marriage. So the fact that it was illegal meant that... It would have been considered invalid. Okay, Once he actually right. needs to get married, right. he could... You know, okay. Make that argument. So it wasn't okay. Got it. Yeah. But then when he eventually does marry to Caroline of Brunswick, it was pretty much a disaster zone for him. That really adds more to his negative reputation. He wasn't very interested in the choice. So he just said that one damn German Frau is as good as another. Oh God. Oh, she must have felt so welcome. When he met her, he thought that she was very coarse, outspoken, uh, disinclined to wash. But, but he sounds like he's describing himself. Well, exactly. <laughs> Apparently, when they first met, he uh, then said to one of his attendants, I am not well. Pray get me a glass of brandy. Mm. Uh, said that he w- she said that he was very stout and very much not like his portrait. Yeah. Classic dating uh, yeah. scenario. <laughs> Changing your age on your Tinder profile. I know what they're up to. When they actually get married at the wedding, George was roaring drunk throughout the entire oh, ceremony. Um, he apparently at one point stood up suddenly for absolutely no reason during a prayer. <laughs> <laughs> then, what uh, a catch and then passed out uh, in the bedroom fireplace that night with it, with it lit? presumably not okay I he wasn't rescued and beaten <laughs> yeah. oh, right, okay fine um, but he did manage the next morning with uh, probably a pretty bad hangover to climb into bed and uh, nine months later they had a daughter oh that's tragic isn't it that's efficient though <laughs> yeah yeah, and then they were never seen together again, or they were just decided that they weren't for each other. I mean, she clearly decided from the outset that they weren't. Well, three days after their daughter Charlotte was born, George made a new will declaring that Maria Fitzherbert was the wife of my heart and soul. And uh, as I say, they did then separate, but Caroline returns for the accession, wanting to be crowned queen. But she would legally have been queen. Cause yeah, because they hadn't divorced yeah, initially, yeah. but she's turned up to the coronation ceremony despite being banned. And she was wearing full-on velvet robes that she bought especially for, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> for the ceremony. Did they let her in? She wasn't let in. She didn't have a ticket. Name wasn't no on the list. Way. But you can just imagine this sort of everybody there and then suddenly this big knock on the door and yeah. George's face going ashen white. Oh, that seems a bit cruel. They could have just gone through the the you know, the ceremony of it all and you know Ignore yeah. that. Ignore yeah. that. It's fine. She's not here. Nobody look at her. That would have been fine. Yeah. As you said, he liked to pretend that Napoleon was his great rival and they were equals. But uh, when Napoleon died and the servant came in to tell him that his greatest enemy was dead, he enthusiastically uh, replied, Is she by God? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) So, I mean, they've both done pretty well. Yeah, they did phenomenally well. I mean, how how do you decide between them? (laughs) I think... For me, it sounds... Oh, no, hang on. I was going to say it sounds like uh, Charles is less cruel, but Charles did the whole bedchamber thing. He did. Yeah. Charles seems maybe a bit more in control of what he's doing, whereas George is just excess and... Yeah. 
Yeah, he as you're saying, he has no idea about budgeting, but he seems to have no idea about how a lot of things work. Yeah. Whereas Charles knew what he was doing and was quick-witted with it. And I think the funny stuff from George is just actually him, his real thoughts. They don't, he doesn't think about what he's saying. When he thinks that his greatest enemy is dead, he genuinely thinks this is right. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah, so Charles for me. Very close score-wise. Uh, Charles was just ahead, though. 16 out of 20 for Charles, oh. and uh, George Fourth got 15 out of 20. Mm. Yeah, they're very equal so far. Mm. Let's see how they do in the next factor. Subjectivity. Yeah, I've th- third gig in, I've got them. <laughs> Charles II, um, there's quite a lot to like about Charles. As you said, the Merry Monarch. Um, the Restoration is only 11 years since his father was executed and the mm. country became a republic. Mm. So it's by no means guaranteed that monarchy will be a success mm. when he comes back. But Charles offers a pardon to all who opposed him except for the regicides, the people that you know signed his father's death warrant um, with his act of indemnity and oblivion. Um, but he's also said got that wry, slightly cynical sense of humour. So mm. when we have the restoration, everybody celebrating him, and I've just realised I probably wasn't talking to that very well. So is that better? <laughs> Everyone can hear me. That's good. Um, every, everyone's celebrating him. You've got all of the people around in London waving their flags, mm. wines flowing everywhere, and all telling him how they would longed for his return for so many years. To which he responded that there were so many people wishing he'd returned. It must have been his own fault that he'd stayed away for so long. <laughs> it, it is, yeah, he does sound like, uh, we said, who, I can't remember who we said this about, but he sounds like uh, he had the same scriptwriter as uh, Roger Moore's 007, <laughs> like some sort of wittier side for each thing. Brilliant. And he is not uh, one who is straight to the chop of the head sort of thing. He can see the funny side in things. Mm. So in 1671, there was a chap, Colonel Blood, who was caught red-handed trying to steal the crown jewels. Sticking it, you know, sort of down his trousers. I think you've been reading a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Blood stealing the crown jewels. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's basically Charles's reaction. So uh, when he was told about it, he roared with laughter, mm. asked to meet him, and ended up giving him a royal position and a salary for life. As royal robber? For <laughs> what? Wow. He just thought it was a great laugh. Yeah. That's what we need. Courage. Balls. Look at this man. Ridiculous. We'd had the, uh, all the puritanical stuff under Cromwell. Charles sweeps it away. Theatres are reopened and women are allowed on stage for the first time. Uh-huh. We have notoriously bawdy comedies written and Charles very much encourages mm. this to be a thing that we can enjoy. Brings back Christmas, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Banned by Cromwell. Yeah. That's, um, sure. Was any of this like uh, as a nod to the general public to try and win them on side? Or was this, was this his view of the world? I think it's his view of the world, I think it's fair to say. Um, in science, he confers a royal charter, uh, a charter on the Royal Society. Oh, so, yeah, Wren, yeah. Hook, Newton, yeah. Boyle, Halley, all around. He was very amused, apparently, at their attempts to try to weigh air. Yeah, it must have looked hilarious. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, he does encourage greater toleration in terms of religion. In 1660, he came back promising liberty to tender consciences. Right. What does he mean? He means that, you know, whatever you want to do, that's fine. Let's not. Like Elizabeth said, put windows into men's souls. Oh, okay. And did they mean it this time? Did, was that it after that? Well, he meant it. Unfortunately, Parliament didn't necessarily agree with him at the time, oh. but he meant it. He intervened to free 700 Quakers from jail on one occasion. It was accepted that they weren't uh, a threat to anybody and were peaceful. Yeah, the Quakers aren't threats, really. Do no, you know? but at the time, they were you know, dissenters. People didn't really mm. like that. But Charles is fine. He and his brother James are on the scene when we have the Great Fire of London. James was directing the firefighters and Charles was encouraging the soldiers in creating a block to try and stop the fire. 
Oh, wow. And Charles also went on scene uh, to try and help the uh, people in the refugee area in Moorfield. So he orders distribution of food. Hmm. And when there's an hysteria of people saying that the whole fire was started by Catholics, he really gets in there and says, no, it definitely wasn't just an accident. Calms yeah. it all down. Yeah. Okay. So this, um, is that his Catholic sympathies or he's just, he's just straightforward trying to control a crowd? I mean, was he literally in the middle of the crowd saying it wasn't Catholics? Or and he's probably not right in the middle of it, but he is there, probably mm. maybe on his horse or, you know, a mm. little stage perhaps. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> maybe dressed up. Mm. Oh, he inevitably dressed up. Get me my speaker's costume. <laughs> now, despite having lots and lots of affairs, in some ways he was quite a good husband. Mm. Are you sure? He does gen well, yeah, too, exactly. Uh, he does generally care for his wife, for Catherine. Um, when she fell seriously ill, he sat with her for hours, was deeply moved when, in a fever, she thought herself pregnant. Oh. Uh, and then bid him to try and marry somebody else. Oh, that's so sad. And when we have the exclusion crisis and the many people in Parliament worried about his brother becoming king, mm. uh, some of the Tories urge him to divorce and marry someone else so that he can produce an heir. But apparently he refused to divorce her and said that considering my faultiness towards her, I think it a horrid thing to abandon her. Oh, he's lovely, old Charles. <laughs> he's sweet. He's got some insight as well. Unlike George, perhaps. And he's got a bit of that wit as well. Um, Earl of Rochester again, um, at court, presumably, actually Is says this, this the master to Charles. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, we have a pretty witty king and whose word no man relies upon. He never said a foolish thing and never did a wise one. Oh, he's been practising that, hasn't he? To which Charles responds, That's true, for my words are my own, but my actions are those of my ministers. Ah, love, well done, Charles. Against him, unfortunately, despite his best intentions, um, there isn't great tolerance in this period in terms of religion. Intolerant acts against dissenters and Catholics ultimately hold sway. Quakers are persecuted and Scottish Presbyterians also brutally suppressed mm. by government. So he isn't actually able to achieve his aims. But he's religion. trying. He's trying to push the other way. It's just that he doesn't have the power. Trying to, he just doesn't manage it. He never actually really wins MPs over because they suspect him of being an absolutist. And say the exclusion crisis got dangerously close to it all starting to kick off again. Hmm. And he does ultimately solve the problem by just not calling Parliament again. <laughs> so that's fine because he died a few years later, but how long would it have gone on before he next called Parliament? How much would tensions have risen? Hmm. We'll yeah. never know. What ifs? And so far, all we know is that he sorted it out. Exactly. <laughs> it's the opposite to what you've been saying every other night when you said if only the king hadn't died, he could have just gone on yeah, and yeah, done yeah. so much more. With him, it's like, just just die quickly. Get yeah, it done. Now, now, yeah, now, yeah, now. Yeah. Um, but he was quite realistic about the situation, I think, with the exclusion crisis. His brother James was apparently concerned about the security arrangements and Charles's safety. Mm. But to which Charles replied, don't worry, Jamie. They'll never kill me to make you king. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you'd laugh. Go, <laughs> oh, yes. Good point. <laughs> Poor bloke. He's also a little bit lazy. Yeah, very. Doesn't really like to do the work. The Earl of Clarendon said um, that he was a bit depressed about how Charles wouldn't do anything. He hath more judgment and understanding by many degrees than many who pretend it. And that is the only thing that breaks my heart, that he makes no more use of it. Of his power? Of his intelligence and his oh, right. capacity. Okay. But he is, try he is pushing for certain things, like the religious toleration and mm. stuff. But so he's just got boxes of work piling up and saying, just sign those somewhere. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, my approach to life. Mm. Mm. I like him. 
We do also, unfortunately, have in uh, 1672 the creation of the Royal African Company. I've never heard of that. Which, I mean, apart from when you told me this the first time around, but <laughs> it's on the same lines as the East India Company. No, this is the start of the organised transatlantic slave trade, mm. which technically does start under Charles. It's perhaps more his brother that really seems to get into it yeah. in an unpleasant way, but that's nevertheless a, not the best of things to have started. No, how can we, um, how can we turn that into a positive? <laughs> Let's talk about George IV instead. Yes! He's also a bit of a bon viveur, mm -hmm. a, good, a good host at parties, apparently a talented mimic. Oh, yeah. As well, because of impressions. Charles Burney said that George had as much wit as Charles II with much more learning. Mm, don't believe him. Yes, I mean, unless Charles Burney was sort of about 150 years old, <laughs> I'm not sure how he'd able to actually make that comparison. Do we know who he did impressions of? I guess just people at court. And oh, okay. Apparently, the Queen is a very good mimic. Have yeah. you heard that? I've never heard her do anything, but I just <laughs> heard that she is. He's quite a kind man on a personal level. He gave readily to hospitals and orphanages, ah. supported the establishment of the RSPCA, ah. and uh, constantly interceded for clemency for capital punishment, and apparently was always very pleased whenever he succeeded. Okay. Um, RSPCA is quite a big one. I didn't realise it was that old. Yeah. It, and we, Yeah, established way before the NSPCC. Yeah. <laughs> it's telling. He tended to judge people by their actions rather than their background. So all servants were given generous pensions and a Christmas party, and apparently he used to join them. <laughs> I bet it is. On one occasion, he heard that a certain pub in London had the best ale. So he went along, had a pint, and chatted to the locals. As king? You, like people knew who Maybe he was? Maybe not as king, but as prince. Wow. Hmm. And he also apparently used to quite enjoy boxing. Oh, I like him a lot. Good. Right. Until he saw a man killed. But he settled an annuity upon his widow. Right. Just yeah. quite, you know, That's nice thing nice. to do. I suppose he's got very little to do apart from party and he's got all this money that he's insisting on spending and giving away. That's how he got <laughs> Some of it he spends quite well. Yeah, the odd bit he gives to other people. It's yes. nice. Mm. Uh, the Regency is a flowering of fashion, arts, literature and architecture and George's a key figure in all of this as a patron and collector. Mm. Jane Austen's Emma is dedicated to him, albeit oh. quite grudgingly. Did they meet? Like, was he? They didn't meet. He had um, apparently a copy of all of her books in all of his palaces. Wow! Because he loved them so much. But yeah. she sympathised with the wife and wasn't so pleased that yeah. her publisher said it might be a good idea to give her yeah a dedication. Yeah, but still, his name's in there. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, he popularised buttons. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you have buttons. I've maybe not today. One. But... You've got one yeah, button. Where's your one. button? I don't really want to show it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Two, then, if we're being technical. <laughs> uh, he improved public access to the arts. He brought back a lot of Charles I's art collection that had been sold off uh, by Cromwell, donated his father's 65,000-volume library to the British Museum, ah. and supported the foundation of the National Gallery. Wow. And he said, I have not formed it for my own pleasure alone, but to gratify the public taste. That's cool. It's like, uh, so, but Charles did the Royal Society one. Yeah. Okay, confused. Okay, right, <laughs> fine, carry on. We also have the Catholic Emancipation and Relief Act, major legislation allowing Catholics the right to sit in Parliament, and then he removes the Test and Corporation Acts requiring um, receiving the sacraments and not denying transubstantiation, i.e. not being a Catholic. <laughs> so he lets people be Catholics? He lets people be Catholic what? and hold public office. Okay. But and that's from 1673, which was actually enacted in the reign of Charles II. That's what I was about to say. Was that 
that was started under Charles, yeah. and people finally got the idea that they weren't yeah. evil people. Mm. Right, okay. Ireland, uh, he went on tour in 1821, the first monarch to visit peacefully from Britain. Mm. Right. Um, he was met by large cheering crowds. He spoke to a farmer who didn't have a cow, so he bestowed a cow upon him. <laughs> <laughs> was he a cow farmer? Or was he, he was mostly sure. crop farming? And he said, well, I can do this cow. It's only a mock in my skin. going to eat everything. Yeah. Well, it's nice thought. It was a nice thought. Um, he then a made farmer a... farmer who didn't have a cow? Are you sure he was a farmer? Well, he asked him. And then he said, yes, I'm a farmer. And he said, do you have a cow? And he said, no. So he said, well, then you shall have one. It's just living in a different world. <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Absolutely crazy. I swear he's off his rocker. <laughs> Um, he then invites this huge crowd to follow him to his house and makes a speech in front of them and bestows lots and lots of whiskey. Right. Brilliant. I mean, that's flawless. That's a great gig. Just throwing up. You're not getting any whiskey. Are you? <laughs> yeah. He then went to Scotland in 1822. This is the first visit since... Don't know. Charles II in oh, 1651. Right, yeah. Okay, good. Um, it was organised by Sir Walter Scott. Mm. So um, he insisted on everyone wearing tartan, and George absolutely loves it. So rather ironically, he wears the Stuart tartan, given all the business that had happened yeah. with uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie not so long ago. So he insisted everyone dress up. There's a yeah. lot of parallels here. They like dressing up. Yeah. And George absolutely loves it. He loves whiskey, he loves the porridge, he loves the dancing. Yeah, it's like and he's discovered this country on his doorstep that he rules. And he thinks, yeah. It's brilliant, <laughs> fantastic. And it's sort of from this visit that we actually start to see the Tartan and Noble Highlander images, like appearing on shortbread tins oh. and that kind of thing. That's where it becomes again okay. a popularised image. Mm. Bagpipes? Do you like those? Probably. Probably. I went to Edinburgh recently. And we're going to Glasgow, and the entire uh, trip was just in the background. This incessant drone on every single street corner. There's <laughs> You go into a cafe and they'll be playing bagpipe music. Oh, so pleased to get on the plane. <laughs> we love you, Scotland. <laughs> Some less positive things about George the Fourth. Right. Um, as we said, the Regency crisis, when George the Third was ill, they really didn't want to have him as regent if they could avoid it. Um, he was apparently engaging in political intrigue the whole time with Fox and mm. the Whigs, and uh, was said to have impersonated George in the pubs. In right. a, you know, as in George in his state of madness mm. in the oh. pubs, which isn't the nicest no. of things to have been doing. And the fact that he was so partial and unfit to rule is the reason there was a crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe... I don't understand why Fox was uh, getting in with him if he was so unreliable and such a... such a Well, because Fox was a radical, out of power, and then you've got the man who is going to become king knocking on your door. Okay, so it still worked. They still had enough power that that was worthwhile being mates. Mm, yeah. Okay. Right. Didn't work out for either of them, but nevertheless, oh, it was a it was a good idea. Mm. Um, when he died, the Times uh, gave perhaps not the best obituary that you might hope to receive no. as well any kind of person, but certainly a king. A hard drinking, swearing, whoring man who at all times would prefer a girl and a bottle to politics and a sermon whose only states of happiness were gluttony, drunkenness, and gambling. There never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. Wow, that's horrible. <laughs> Poor guy. Like, especially for this family reading that. Just, there's got to be a nice way of putting it. It feels like <laughs> he's writing such a bad one, he's hoping George will read it. <laughs> really bad. Imagine uh, Char um, David Dimbleby saying that, you know, at a, yeah, a yeah, royal yeah. funeral. Yeah, awful. Right, so he, he was very hated in some quarters. 
He was. And despite passing some of that good reform, George himself actually wasn't really in favour of it, and he was very reluctant. Um, so that's where it finished. We were just talking about George the Fourth and the ways in which he wasn't perhaps the best king right. that there'd ever been. And then, uh, then the episode cut out, unfortunately. Not at live at the time, but subsequently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. So, I mean, what happened? Well, so then obviously went on to talk about uh, dynasty, mm. where Charles II didn't have any surviving children, and in fact, neither did George the Fourth. Surviving legitimate children, that is. Obviously, yeah. Charles II had plenty of... Uh, <laughs> which is almost a miracle for both of these people. Uh, and longevity beforehand, which you would always forget the order, and now I've done it as well. Huh? Uh, is it that way around? Longevity, dynasty. Okay. Rex Factor. So, then, as with all nights, we got the audience to vote mm. for uh, who was... The best, the most raucous, whichever way people chose to interpret it, we maybe hadn't been clear enough. I think that was the problem with this episode, if there were, um, because were we saying which was a better king or which was more raucous? So, you decide. Well, I didn't decide. The audience in Oxford Mm. decided, whichever way they chose to interpret it. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the, the vote wasn't particularly close. I think George IV got about three votes. Really? Everybody else went for Charles II. It was very, very one-sided. Right. I mean, I sort of remember, I think, from that episode thinking that actually it was difficult because Charles came across as much more genial Mm. than George IV. Yeah. He was a bit more of a... bit more slobby. Yes. Um... I think that's the thing. If we, I think we probably made it a bit too much who was the better king. Yeah. In which case, it's obviously Charles. If we'd made it a bit more about being raucous, perhaps George would have got some more votes. Yeah. So I think when we did subsequent episodes, like um, the so-called baddies, mm. uh, the next one we did in Leeds, we really played up to the what makes a good villain mm. rather than just who ruled better. Yeah, but, we, you know, we're getting slicker and slicker with each one. Hmm. I'm afraid I can't remember the full uh, sort of half hour of questions and answers. Not me either. That then followed. So apologies to anyone who came to Oxford and was hoping to uh, hear those questions answered a second time. <laughs> uh, because those unfortunately have been lost. But we had a lot of fun afterwards. I think as a proportion of the audience, that was the most amount of people that we then got to have a drink and a chin. Oh, in Oxford. Afterwards. Yeah. yeah, that was great. It was a huge, great table of us wasn't there yeah. oh well it wasn't it was all wasn't it was just such a small little bar it was yeah. just the bar um but yeah so thanks everyone for coming it was really good fun mm. and uh privy councillors who uh are enjoying the tour diaries will find that this was i think our longest one and certainly from your perspective probably mine as well but definitely from your perspective the drunkest tour diary episode oh yes yeah, that sort of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? We had great <laughs> yeah. fun socialising at the end. Now listen to the tour diary. Oh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> oh. oh, well, well sign up to be a privy councillor, and you get to relive. Oh, I don't know that I want to hear that. What you sound like at the end. Oh, of the I night. don't know that I want any. Oh, so what? You're, what we've done is just put this out to the world of me being drunk. Yeah. I left Facebook for this reason. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed uh, the live episodes. Sorry that we didn't quite have the full amount. Mm. But, uh, that's okay. the only one that happened. So one in six for our first ever live tours. Not, not bad. bad. Yeah. Not bad at all. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>